The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I mentioned to the group this morning that uh, a lot of you know, those of you who've been around for a while, we try to, around the solstices and equinoxes, we try to... uh, reflect on our refuge. And this is a traditional recitation that's done in Buddhist circles, really any lineage of Buddhism, wherever it might have gone over the centuries, you know, different places on the planet. They all have had some kind of what we call a refuge and precept ritual or ceremony or recitation And it's often done in community, at least, I mean, you can do it alone, but it's uh, often done in community. And it's, it really is just like we can do tonight, just this question about, you know, what do we want to keep in mind? (laughs) Because as uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, the real danger or the real enemy is forgetfulness, you know, where we get swept along by the momentum of our lives and culture and all these different ways of being distracted. Like, how are the twins doing tonight? Some of you, I'm sure, don't even realize that there's a baseball team in Minnesota called the Twins, but they're in the playoffs, right? And they're playing tonight in Houston, I think. But that's just like one of a billion things we could be obsessed about, you know, And then we forget the most important thing. What is the most important thing? I mean, that itself is a bit astounding that, like, to whatever degree we're not actually clear about what I really would like to keep in mind, that says something, (laughs) right? Like, what is important to keep in mind? Because doesn't take much reflection, you know, just in terms of reflecting on what it means to have a life, a mind, and a body, to realize that uh, we, we are definitely, all of us, susceptible uh, to being swept along by what in Buddhism are called the three or four floods. It seems like in the very earliest teachings there were three floods, and then it kind of expanded one of the three and made it four floods. Asawa, some of you might know that Pali term. It's a good, it's an important term. It gets translated in different ways, including the, you know, the floods, the cankers, the taints, and the, the one translation I like best, the intoxicant biases. <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, effluence, yeah, yeah. But, but it's like, we're, like in terms of what's really well greased in our mind, like how our mind tends, like where the grooves are cut deeply and well greased, and it's easy for my mind to flow into, like the first one is sensual craving, craving a nice sense experience. And there's like, 
it doesn't actually matter like whether I'm thinking about popcorn or thinking about sleep or thinking about a good massage or, you know, what, but the groove is kind of a nice experience. And it's that sort of like promise, like if I get that nice experience, that nice sense experience, then that's gonna make a real difference to me. Even, you know, and then related to that, but the second flood thing that can, you know, our mind can just be swept uh, away with is different ideas about becoming. Becoming this, being that, getting into shape, being acknowledged, being liked. See, it's related to sense experience, uh, craving some sense experience, but it's really more specific to the sense of self, like who I could be, and wanting that identity, wanting to be that person, wanting to have that um, happen to me, and then the third, fourth flood way that our mind gets swept away is with views, fixed views, attached to opinions, especially self-centered views. And then related is just ignorance. Is, but, you know, ignorance and, and self-view are very closely tied, so that's why, um, you know, how it is. Be a little bit more clear and you kind of systematize it a little bit more. But really just those three are enough to remember. You know, views, self-views, and the ignorance of being attached to our dramas or self-centered ways of thinking, being attached, being swept away with ideas of becoming somebody, becoming better, becoming, you know, being done with something is even a way, like I really want to be done with this habit. I want to become the person who's done with this habit, this addictive pattern. That's also that, that being swept away with becoming. And then just more ordinary habit of being swept away with sense desire. How many moments today has our mind been swept away with thinking about sense desire, sense experience? So when we understand the danger, you know, like a life spent, swept away, swept along, and uh, it's just interesting, you know, mostly for his uh, 45 years, 40 years, I guess 45 years of teaching in northern India along the Ganges floodplain, right? So flooding, that's why he used that, that uh term, Asawa, effluence, floods, being swept away, because it was what people were really scared of back then. You know, the river would rise, one of the tributaries to the Ganges would rise and sweep the whole village away, because it doesn't have to rain in the village, it just needs to rain upstream. So then it makes us wonder, like, well, what is, what is our refuge to being swept away? And the superficiality and the distractedness and the, you know, the real danger of 
not being clear about what's really important in our lives. So then when we're on our deathbed or when we're in some crisis, one kind of crisis or another, well, what kind of mind will we have? Well, we'll have a mind that's been obsessed with sense desire and becoming and, you know, attachment to views, fixed views. That, that's not necessarily going to serve us when we're experiencing some difficult thing like dying or loss or whatever it might be. What will really help? So it's useful, like as a community of Buddhist practitioners, people interested in awareness practice, to get clear together. And some of you know, like it's a, it's a ritual to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, these three Pali words, Buddha, doesn't mean a person, it's a title. It means being awake. That's what the word Buddha means. So the Buddha, you know, that person that lived 45, uh, 2,600 years ago, taught for 45 years, you know, he was awake, had deep insight. So distractedness, being lost in thought, evidently was uprooted. Those tendencies were uprooted. So presumably, you know, at least as we understand it, this many years later, this person was awake, <laughs> you know, not forgetful. Oh, it's like this. And part of being awake is understanding what's valuable and what's not valuable. Like, one of the reasons my mind can get swept away in unhelpful obsessions is because it doesn't seem like such a big deal in that moment of being swept away. Well, you know, why not think about what an interesting car this is? I don't need a car. I have a really nice car now. It works fine, you know, but I'll see something about the new EVs and, oh, and I'll get swept away. But that sense desire and that becoming the person who has a nice fancy electric car or something like that. Right? And it's like we live in that bubble for a while. And it seems somewhat harmless. And it, you know, in the relative sense of things, maybe it is somewhat harmless, but we're always planting seeds. Every single moment we are shaping the heart. There's no moment we're not shaping the heart. So the the mind, the heart we have right now, its tendencies. This is the natural, uh, unavoidable result of all that shaping process that happened previously. And then we end up with a heart-mind that behaves like this, that has these tendencies, these impulses. Didn't just happen, it got shaped. That's already done. There's nothing we can do about the mind, the tendencies, the impulses that are here right now, except the way we're relating to this mind right now is shaping it as it goes forward. So we can feel the impulse to be swept away this way or to be swept away that way. And we have this option just to feel it. 
And that's really, in Buddhism, in early Buddhism, that's the refuge. We don't imagine there's some savior out there that's going to save us, or some secret teaching that when we get that teaching, we'll kind of lock it away in our heart or mind, and that will be our goal to protect us. It's really this capacity that we all have to not be swept away. But not being swept away by the habits that have already been formed by the past, in the past. To not be swept away means that we need the stability of wisdom and awareness. We need to feel this capacity to feel, to be intimate, but not confused by what we're feeling. So you might, like somebody might yawn in a really obvious way and and even while they're yawning, roll their eyes a little bit in a way that I can see them, right? And that might trigger all kinds of, you know, primal self-doubt, should I be up here teaching the Buddhist teaching, you know, whatever that might trigger any of us. Or, you know four people leave the room, or something like that, you know, which for a public speaker, that's, you know, not a good sign. (laughs) Now, if you have to use the bathroom and it's an emergency. (laughs) But, you know, anything, I mean, things like this happen, and then what actually happens is there's the perception of something like that, and then there's a strong feeling, right? It feels like something when we get triggered. And Normally what happens when we're not, our heart, mind hasn't been well-trained is the feeling arises and it's as if the feeling tells us what to do. And it sends us down one of those three groups, those three floods. We either imagine a pleasant sense experience that we want or an unpleasant sense experience we want to get rid of and we get lost in that proliferation or becoming somebody, or some self-view, some fixed view of things. Because all three of those avenues of mental proliferation, that mental proliferation, it creates the semblance of a reality that we inhabit that appears to give the heart some distance from that yucky feeling that we don't want to feel. Because I'm thinking about, well, I'll show them. I'm going to become the best Buddhist teacher ever, you know, or whatever. Or they're probably so ignorant, they can't get what I'm saying, you know. But whatever the mind, whichever those kinds of fixed views or wanting some sense experience or wanting to become somebody, whatever the mind entertains, gets swept away with, it's just due to an unwillingness to feel feel the feeling that's there to feel. And so in Buddhism, we talk about that as I take refuge in the Buddha and I take refuge in Dhamma, Buddha and Dhamma or Dharma. Dharma is the Sanskrit. You hear that a little bit more often in the West um, for all kinds of historic reasons. But Dhamma is the Pali version and the early Buddhist teachings Uh, are recorded in the Pali language. Uh, Both are ancient Indian languages, Pali and Sanskrit, very much related. Um, 
And common ground is in the early Buddhist tradition, as opposed to the later Buddhist traditions that um, a lot of the scriptural uh, writings, recordings were in Sanskrit. And then Tibetan and Chinese, too, for those later traditions. So um, that's how we remember it. You know, so when you stumble upon, like if you came this morning, we chanted the three refuges. I take refuge. We did it in Pali. Buddhang Saranangachami. Dhammang Saranangachami. Right? I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in Dhamma. I take refuge in being awake to the way it is. Well, what does that mean? It means I take refuge in being able to feel what it feels like and not be confused by the intensity or the subtlety or the unpleasantness or the pleasantness of the feeling or the neutrality of the feeling. Whatever the feeling is, I take refuge in being able to be intimate with it. So, you know, in Buddhist terms, if someone asks you, what's all that about? You go to common ground, you know, what's, what's that all about? You say, well, I'm interested in, in awakening to Buddha and Dhamma, Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, being awake to the way it is, to the way it actually is, being awake, being intimate, being sensitive, not even dependent on a cognitive interpretation of what that even means, right? It, it's not about understanding, oh, this is what I'm feeling. Like, you don't need to be able to answer the question, Mark, what are you feeling? You don't need, it's not about being able to answer that question because, like, when we're touching something, like I'm touching my thigh, and I feel the warmth, I feel the contact, the pressure, maybe some sense of smoothness of the pants, the roundness of the thigh, Right? That's what I actually sense. But I don't need any of those words to be intimate, to be really there with that experience of touch. I don't need the concept leg or pants or smooth or hard or heat or coolness. I don't need any of that to be right there, relaxed, and in a sense, vulnerable to the feeling. Now, a lot of what we feel in any moment, like maybe this moment, is somewhat neutral. But that doesn't mean we're able to feel. Because the habit around neutrality, which you know is really a lot of our day, a lot of our moments in the day, the deep habit is to ignore neutrality. Right? It says, well, it's just neutral. Why would I have to be intimate? <laughs> Clearly, there's more, something more important for me to do right now than just be intimate with the way it is. That's why we need a refuge. Because now you may not be there yet, but the more we play, work, mess around with this practice, the more we really see that this is the most important thing. More than anything else you have to do, like remember to go to work tomorrow, or you know things that are actually in this sort of level of survival really important, like eat good food, drink water, put yourself to bed at night so you get a good night's sleep. But 
more important, I mean, at least as a proposition, is to remember to deeply, deeply value Buddha and Dhamma, being awake now, always here and now. We can only be awake, open, sensitive to what's here and now. Buddha being intimate with Dhamma. And when we do that, then it sets in motion the third refuge. So there's Buddha, Dhamma. The third is Sangha. You might have heard that word. It's used actually a lot in a more um, general sense, superficial sense, as spiritual community. So you might have heard people like, oh, the common ground Sangha. I feel part of this common ground Sangha. Or I really like the common ground Sangha, as opposed to saying the community at common ground or something like that. But it has a more important, deeper meaning than just community. And traditionally in Buddhism, Sangha means the monastic community. But really what it meant is the awakened community. People, in any moment, because it's not so much that a person is awake, but there's awakening in a moment. There's Buddha being awake, to Dhamma, the way it is. And then in that moment, or in those moments when there's the mind or the heart is able to be intimate, remembering to be intimate, open to the way it is, then whatever you do, however you respond, whatever you say or don't say, however you act or don't act, that activity, your engagement then, would, would be called Sangha. Because your, you know, how you show up, even your body language, is just going to be coming out of the depth and breadth of that intimacy with the way it is. So it would be what we call an appropriate response. There's a very famous place in uh, later traditions in the Chan Zen tradition in China, and one of the great uh, leaders in the early years of Chan Buddhism, which when it went to Japan got called Zen Buddhism, um, but it started in China. And one of the patriarchs, one of the sort of heads of, the, of that lineage was asked once, just this kind of question you want to ask somebody. It's like I mentioned, I think it might have been last Sunday, um, but there's like a history of, people asking wise people, please sum up the teachings in brief so that I can remember them. So somebody basically asked the Zen patriarch that, sum up all of the Buddhist teachings, please, if you would, (laughs) so I don't have to read those 40 volumes. You know, just sum it up for me. And he had one of the best answers, according, you know, from my opinion. It's just a great answer because it's so embodied. He said, I mean, he said more than the, just this, but the, the gist of his answer was an appropriate response. Because that's when we're doing the practice right, that's actually what stands out, is that moment by moment by moment, the life we're living, what we're saying, what we're not saying, what we're doing or not doing, how we're doing everything, would have the flavor of an appropriate response. Because... The response isn't coming from some plan we have in our mind, some map we learned, some self-help book we read that told us how to live our life. 
how we're living, what we're doing, saying, all of that, is just naturally arising out of that intimacy of Buddha being awake, being intimate with Dhamma, the way it is. So you could practice this, like right now, or later when you go home and you see your dog, you see your cat, you know, instead of thinking, well, this is how I should be with my dog or cat, or my partner, or myself, because I don't live with anybody, you know. But you could say, well, just be radically open or present, and I'll see what arises out of that. It's like one of my great lines to myself is, well, this will be interesting. So instead of like, oh, I gotta do it right, I don't want to screw up Sunday evening because then Monday will be off. And if Monday's off, then Tuesday will be off. Because that's a heavy trip, like to have to do Sunday evening right. Or to, you know, even like when I said, like now, we can get self-conscious. Okay, I've got to be the best or at least in the top 10 of the participants and the weekly practice group on Sunday night at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You know, it's like, I don't want to be one of the lo- those in the lower half. Because we always think in this way about like fitting in, belonging, being good, am I good enough? But just, lo- we can lose all of that, whether it's around parenting or being a good partner or being a good employee at work or being a good citizen or we can just have that attitude where this will be interesting. It will be interesting to see how this plays out. This life, this moment, this interaction, how I do my teeth tonight. It will be interesting. Letting nature be nature. And all we're investing in is this refuge of Buddha, being intimate with Dhamma, allowing Sangha, this enlightened or awakened activity, as nature, just to play itself out. Instead of having to be a perfect, you know, Buddhist or a perfect awakened one, which is, that would be a really heavy load. (laughs) You know, it's like, okay, let's see, I'm supposed to be calm, you know, I'm supposed to have those sort of, that sort of composed, uh, indifference, is that what it is? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like a imi- game of imitation, trying to fit some image of what we think a wise or a good human being acts like, looks like. But it's just more suffering, of course. So when, you know, I encourage you to find your own way to bring to mind to reflect on your refuge. And uh, I'll save some time tonight, we'll talk about it, but this is actually one of the reasons to have a really good Dharma friend, right? To whatever degree you're interested in looking at your own heart and mind, being introspective in this sense, it really helps to have a good friend who's equally interested or a good community like here at Common Ground, because uh, 
we're going in a different direction, generally speaking, in the culture. You know, the culture is really defined to a large degree by distraction. And a lot of, I often say, a lot of our economy, even the jobs that, you know, we have sometimes, it's all about feeding this pattern of distraction. Most of the really intelligent, competent people get sucked into various jobs that are about producing different things that ultimately aren't that important. They're just distractions. More interesting kitchen gadgets. You know, this is like so much of our technology is about like things becoming slightly more special. Slightly better than they were before. Electric cars, I mentioned I read an article about electric cars, you know, they can go from zero to 60 now. Like, it's not really a special electric car if it can do, if it takes more than five seconds to go from zero to 60. It used to be, you know, if your car could go from zero to 60 in like eight seconds, that was pretty good. And who needs to go from zero to 60 that fast? I mean, but it's like, same with the comforts of our cars, you know, and all this sort of little things are the kind of clothing that we wear and there's no end to any of that. So part of this refuge is realizing the endlessness of sense desire, the endlessness of becoming. When are we ever satisfied with who we've become? I noticed as I was walking here tonight, which is just so, you know, you know, it's really a tragedy how rare it is. But just realizing, I, I mean, it's, it's almost embarrassing to say this, but just realizing, oh, I'm happy. Yeah, I was just walking. It's just seven blocks to my house. And that's uh, the old common ground for the first 15 years in our home, which is an old uh, storefront. But when my partner and I, I just live there now. But anyway, just walking here, and then, you know, having some moments of awareness. And then because there was that stable presence, obviously you're gonna, the mind is gonna be aware, oh, it's like this. And then that discerning, oh, this is happiness. Like this is a mind, and that, that was all comprehended. Oh, this is a mind that has, you know, there's no greed and no aversion operating in the mind right now. No delusion, because now the mind is clear that it's like this, happiness is like this, and no attachment to the happiness, just happiness being no. It can be that simple. And we want to realize that one of the things about those moments is that, that realization that this happiness in a sense, is for its own sake. It's not dependent. It's not that walking from my house to common ground is like special. <laughs> you know, it's just a street in Minneapolis, 26th Street, nothing sacred. You know, there's not some spiritual vortex between my house and common ground where when you walk through it, all the troubles go away. And that's the thing about real, like what we mean by spiritual happiness or freedom. It's, in Buddhism, we call it unconditioned, right? Meaning it's not about your sense experience 
And it's not about you became somebody, you got somewhere. That's why I said earlier, you don't become an awakened one. There are awakened moments. When things come together just right, there's awakened moments. Buddha is intimate with Dhamma, and the activity has the flavor of Sangha. The activity, the expression of our lives, what we're doing, so to speak, is Sangha. And all of that is characterized by freedom. It's frictionless. There's no rub. (laughs) There's no weight. It's nature being nature, except as a human being, we're still sensitive to that. So there's a sensitivity to the freedom. Oh, this is freedom. And if there's still some semblance of ego or self-centeredness in that moment, then we lose it because the ego starts to claim the freedom. Well, claiming freedom is not freedom. That's greed again. That's wanting it as my sense experience or wanting to become that person who's awakened, wanting to, to fixate on the view I'm awakened and hold to that. Well, that's just kind of normal human misery, you know. And it goes like that. People, all the time, we have moments and then they get contaminated with attachment, with identification, and we lose it. But that's okay, because it's going to happen anyway. But that's how we learn. How to experience freedom without it being the cause for friction, self-centered clinging. How can we be happy without any friction? How can we be sad without any friction? How can we any experience whatsoever? And that's why the training, you know, when we sit and do our meditation in the morning or whenever you do it, come to Kamba Ground, we're really just like that image I gave us at the end, I think, of the guided meditation tonight, where we could just imagine like, yeah, the heart, the profoundly sensitive heart, is right here, right in the middle of all these different currents of feeling. Some have to do with what's going on right now, like hearing a sound from the traffic and the mind's conditioned response. Some of it is just reverberations from unresolved pain from the past. It's all here. Where else could the unfinished business be? All of life is right here. There's nothing back there in the past. And the future isn't here. There's just this and sensitivity. And with wisdom, a willingness to just let it be. Sensitivity and feeling. Knowing and stuff being known. That's all it is. That's what it means to be human. Knowing and experiences being known. Feelings and feelings being felt. That's all. And either because of habit, because of those floods, we create friction with it, or we learn to be frictionless, which means it comes at a cost. We have to be willing to feel that exposure, that vulnerability to degrees that are hard to imagine. It's like when we're sitting in some really strong wormy, yucky, wiry feeling comes, which is like, 
this is not okay. I am not going to feel this, you know. And it's like we want to bolt or we want to get distracted. But, but eventually we realize we get tired of running, you know, and hiding. And, and eventually it just starts to make sense. It's, it's really has the flavor sometimes of spiritual exhaustion, but in a good sense, like, I'm not going to run anymore. How could it make sense to keep running from my life, from the moment? It doesn't make sense. What makes sense is just to embody, embrace sensitivity. Oh, it feels like this. So I'll leave it here because it'd be nice to hear from some of you. We've got more than 15 minutes. Questions, of course, are always appropriate. But also your own testimonials and reflections about what I've said about learning how to just be in the middle of that feeling and and also ways that you've articulated your own refuge and how you kept your refuge, what's really most important. How do you keep that in mind? How do you keep remembering it so you don't get swept away? Yeah, please start us off. I found that uh, what I thought was refuge was actually the opposite of Yeah, and that's a lot. What we're doing is like when we contemplate refuge, like just in Buddhist terms, you know, somebody might come to a center like common ground or go to a monastery or even go to Asia and uh, get really moved by the teachings and the ritual and the community. And, and it might arise, might arouse a lot of devotional, beautiful energy. I take risk. And, and it may really change their life in a powerful way. But then they still have to tease out all of the idealism, romanticism, hopefulness. All that has to be teased out because the refuge isn't a construction of our mind. But there, that doesn't mean there aren't relatively wholesome constructions in our mind. There are, just like there are relatively hellish constructions of our mind that we inhabit sometimes. But eventually we'll see, even with the most sublime experiences or constructions, that being dependent on it is stressful. Needing it is stressful. Needing there to be a Buddha who's wise, who's got my back, that idea and the dependency on that idea is stressful. It's not a refuge. But it might be, it might really help us out in life when I'm caught up in a lot of bad stuff and then I come across the Buddhist teachings and this love I have for the teachings and for this person who lived way back when and really helps me kind of pick myself up and change my life. I mean, we do that. It's kind of like climbing a ladder to let go of this. We got to take a hold of that. When we really got a good grip, then we're okay letting go of that. And so we do this, but ultimately we, we got to keep going. That's the key. And so what Tim described 
like seeing a refuge and then beginning. But that doesn't mean it wasn't useful what you were stabilizing your life with. The question is, and it, and it doesn't also mean that what you were using might have the scent of something more deep or more subtle or more real. And in our practice sense, what is actually real is subtle. Subtle in the sense that it's so here and now that we tend to miss it. So we have to, you know, we have to be prepared to miss it. But are we honing in? That's the key. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thank you. Who'd like to go next? Are there reflections or questions coming to mind? It's a real generous thing to share. Yeah, please. Um, I'm wondering now, as, as you're talking and reflecting on what Tim said as well, I'm wondering now, kind of like, even if the goal is to try and like be like the Buddha, who I might conceive of as just someone who was just like constantly in a space of refuge, like the refuge didn't even exist for him because he was just like constantly present and, and awake. Um, and so I'm just thinking of like, even the concept of refuge implies that there are times when you're not in that refuge and in our, you know, everyday life, that seems practical to me. Like, that, that, you know, there's times when I want to be in the zone or, or kind of be productively distracted in you know, work or um, whatever it is. And so and maybe they are sort of like mutually exclusive, but if just a, a thought I had, just a curiosity of like maybe for myself, like, rather than sort of trying to get to this place of always being in refuge, just being grateful that I like have a refuge somewhere to go to. Because um, as we were talking, I, I, I just felt a sense of gratitude that I've been able to sort of like carve out this little refuge in my inner life, a, a place to go to when things are, are really tough or stressful, like I feel largely safe because I know like, oh, well, I can, I have this practice. I, I, I know I can go to this space within me that's, or, or yeah, I can just like arrive to the present mo- moment and there's, there's like some rest there. Um, so yeah, just, I, yeah, no, not a question, just a reflection on, on kind of like a shifting goal and like maybe it's less like trying to get to some state of constant refuge and more just like working on my little refuge corner. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a lot of really interesting things you said, Nathan. I really appreciate your sharing. And uh, first, your one of your earlier points, I totally agree with. The idea of refuge, all of what we talked about, I've talked about tonight, is for deluded people. If you're fully awake, just forget what I said, right? Because the idea of refuge is for a mind, a heart, that... Uh, is beginning to recognize the patterns, the floods aren't serving, aren't in the direction of my well-being or anybody's well-being. So then we become a being who realizes 
hey, I'm in need of a refuge. I'm in need of a refuge because I'm acknowledging more clearly these ways my mind gets swept away and that those ways my mind gets swept away aren't for my well-being or anybody's well-being. And even relatively neutral things, it's like, in a way, there's no neutral ground. We're either digging the hole deeper or we're moving in the direction of release or freedom. But you can check, it's, you don't want to believe that, you want to check it out. Because this goes to your other point, Nathan, about, because this is how it is, you know, not, not for everyone, but a lot of people, they come to Common Ground or to the Buddhist teachings and just generally to spiritual practices when they're desperate, when, you know, life has really delivered some difficult stuff. There's a heavy breakup or whatever it might be. And then they're looking for some support and then they find, you know, some teachings, practices that really help. And then life stabilizes partly because of the practices, the reorientation that comes from the practice. And then they do like you were saying, it's like, oh, I am so grateful. I found something that actually works. And we kind of create this little place, like when things get tough, I can come, it's like a good friend. I may not see you for years, but I know you got my back, like I got your back, and I can always call you, and you're going to be there for me. And it's like that with the refuge. And that seems like an inevitable place in the path. But then we become more reflective, more sensitive, and it, this goes back to what I was saying a few seconds ago, where we realize, actually, I think I need you all the time. Because there's really no holding zone. There, that was sort of a delusion to think that I'm fine unless I get hit with a crisis. And then I'll need you, but I'm fine otherwise. But there's a deepening of practice, deepening insight when we realize like, even when I have a lot of well-being, even when I'm living a privileged existence and things are going my way, I'm still a suffering being. So there's three types of suffering. There's the ordinary, it's called dukkha dukkha, right? It's the suffering, the ordinary mental and physical pain. And then there's viparanama dukkha. This is this dukkha, which is even when things are going well, no mental or physical pain, whatever the absence of mental and physical pain is, it's uncertain, it's unreliable, it's ungovernable. So it ruins it. My being on vacation in a beautiful place with beautiful tropical breezes, my best friends, you know, whatever your scenario of things going well might be, knowing that I can't hold on to it makes it, it, it doesn't mean it's not pleasant. It just means it's not the refuge that I thought it was. So whatever it is, you know, saving enough for retirement. One of the things, you know, because I have an obsession about finding the perfect cabin that I'll never afford on Lake Superior, one of the things you see over and over and over again when you look is like these were dreams people had to make themselves happy. And then they either 
some financial thing happened and they can't afford their dream anymore, so they have to sell, or they got too old to maintain their dream, but one way or another, they had to let it go. That's why it's for sale. You know, and you really get the sense, you know, you look at the 47 pictures that go with each listing or whatever it is, you really get the sense, oh, this is some version of some manifestation of somebody's dream of what's going to make them happy. Not every place, right? Some places are dumps, but (laughs) the places I can't afford are like this, right? And you really see, oh, yeah, that's one thing after another. So you might, it's fine, like what you said, like I'm not so interested in being fully awakened. That's good to be honest, but we want to keep an open mind. We don't want to have a fixed view that I'm fine because the fixed view I'm fine is what we call delusion. Because the more accurate, skillful place would be, am I fine? Like curiosity. That would be a healthier way of relating. When things are going well, like, is this, is this really okay? How's the heart? Yeah, it's pleasant, it's good. And, and just that, like remember, awareness has, wisdom and awareness has this real breadth. It doesn't just have sensitivity and subtlety. It has this contextual uh, awareness. Like it really gets the big picture. Birth, aging, death. really gets the reality of uncertainty. Like all those people around us, they were cruising too. And then pancreatic cancer, you know, or then (laughs) divorce or, you know, all the things that happen to people. So then maybe I need to move you front and center, you know. And, And the other thing to do with that is to move our Buddhist practice and the, uh, and the real benefit we've gotten from our practice, we have to be interested in something that's very subtle because the experience of freedom initially is very subtle. The, the experience of the heart, the heart's release is subtle. But in our practice, subtle is significant. It's just subtle. But just because it's subtle doesn't mean it's not radically transforming. So we have to get interested in, like, why was it really effective at helping us through those challenging times? What is it about it? We have to be not content just that it really helped when things were difficult, but to respect it enough to go, what is this thing that works so well? that really helped me through when I was really struggling. What's here about that? How does it work? We have to really examine what Buddha being intimate with Dhamma is and how Sangha arises out of that, how freedom, how wisdom and love arises out of that naturally, organically. Because you will get a little taste of freedom, and that taste of freedom really makes everything else in sense experience seem relatively insignificant because what the heart wants 
is that unforgettable taste of freedom, of this heart unburdened. So it's really nice when things are just the way we like it, but it's so much, I mean, exponentially nicer not to need things to be any particular way, not to be dependent, this heart or mind, not dependent on anything. So the world, not that we wish the world to be circling down the toilet, you know, in any number of ways, and I'm not saying it is, but even if it were, you know, something really terrible happening, that that the heart could be composed and do whatever it can to minimize suffering, but not burdened by whatever goes on. There's a great story. Some of you know Ramana Maharshi. Um, He's one of the more contemporary Indian saints. He died like either 1950 or 1954, around there. And, uh, yeah, pretty influential. And, you know, he's not Buddhist, but uh, this general movement of Eastern teachings coming to the West, and for me personally, was uh, his teachings were quite influential in my first years of practice. And uh, when he was dying, he had some kind of cancer, and then it, it was like spread into his arm, you know, and I think it was just like falling apart. And so it was sort of shocking to his, you know, he's quite, by the end of his life, he was quite well known in India um, as a saint and people were gathered around and, you know, begging him, you know, apparently are quite wise and powerful, do something. <laughs> and, uh, but he would, he didn't talk too much um, as a teacher. And then, but at one point he said, uh, you know, people, don't go, don't go. And he would say to, he said to them once, where would I go? Where could I go? You know, it's just because the mind isn't bothering with anything about, except being sensitive to what's moving. So it's not positioning itself here as somebody who's going to die. Right? So that's why in Buddhism, we sometimes... Early, early Buddhism especially uses that term deathless, deathlessness as a synonym for awakening or freedom. It's like not being somebody who's born, lives, and dies. That doesn't mean that there isn't something happening here, but there's the heart isn't identified with this natural process of birth and death. So let that be the mystery we'll leave. <laughs> Another talk, maybe. But let's just take a few seconds, like go the words. Not having to hold on to anything. For a long, long time, 2,600 years, people have been hearing the Buddhist teachings, doing their best to reflect and practice, waking up to some degree, having deep insight, passing it along one generation after another now for a long time. So 
like it or not, it's our turn now. We're hearing the teachings, we're practicing the teachings. So may each of us in our own way realize the depth of these teachings, integrate them, live them, and be part of them passing along for future generations, this stream of human common sense. Really, that's what it is. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.